Welcome to US Rail Journeys, Series 1, Episode 7, From Pasco to Shelby, on the Empire Builder. The train has slowed considerably as we start to come into the outskirts of Pasco. We've been told that as we're staying here for a few minutes, there is time for the passengers to get off and have a breath of fresh air. And as long as we stay close to the train, we should be able to get back on before it leaves the station. We're now four hours into our journey as we come into Pasco. And a fresh air break is something that actually sounds like a rather good idea. It's completely dark outside and the moon that I could see earlier through haze seems to have disappeared completely but then it could be the aspect that I'm looking out of the window from. We're now slowly pulling out of Pasco. For those of you who may be worried that I'd lost the moon, I did see it from the platform, still through a haze. So a very pleasant little stop there, probably no more than five minutes. The train is now on its way to Spokane. So now we have three hours until we arrive in Spokane. Once we arrive in Spokane, we'll wait for the arrival of the Seattle section, which will be joined onto the front of the train. So as I'm sat in the very last car of the train, we will be the last car all the way to Chicago. The station in Spokane is known as the Spokane Intermodal Centre, which has Amtrak trains, Greyhound and Trailways coach connections as well. And in 2016, 51,210 passengers either boarded or got off trains here. Spokane is the largest city in the inland northwest. It is located on the Spokane River, west of the Rocky Mountain foothills, 92 miles south of the Canada-US border, and 20 miles from the Washington-Idaho border. It's the second largest city in Washington state, with a population of around 210,000, and it's nicknamed the Lilac City, and is said to be the birthplace of Father's Day. Historically, natural resources have been the foundation of the economy, with mining, logging and agriculture being the main activities. To the south is a region that has long been associated with farming, especially wheat production, and it's one of the largest wheat-producing regions in the US. Also these days, there are many vineyards and microbreweries as well. Notable people from Spokane include Bing Crosby, David Lynch, a film director, Mike Clark, a member of the 60s group The Birds, and Tom Foley, a US congressman and former Democratic Speaker of the House of Representatives. Twenty miles after we left Spokane in the middle of the night, we crossed the Washington-Idaho state line. The north part of Idaho is actually pretty narrow and we pass completely across the state during the middle of the night. Approximately 38% of the state of Idaho is managed by the US Forest Service. The state is renowned for its potato crop, which is about a third of the total produced in the United States. The state has rich renewable energy resources. The Snake River Plain and smaller river basins provide the state with some of the nation's best hydroelectric power resources 
and the mountain areas have significant geothermal power and wind power potential. At 2.30 in the morning when I was fast asleep we went through Sandpoint with a population of nearly 7,400. It was a pity that I was asleep and it was dark because I don't get to see it as it was named the nation's most beautiful small town by the newspaper USA Today in 2011. The list of notable people from Sandpoint includes Sarah Palin. The railway station at Sandpoint was constructed in red brick in the Gothic Revival style in 1916 and is the oldest active passenger station on the Northern Pacific Railway. It went through a major refurbishment in 2015 and last year it was used by 7,510 passengers. As we leave Idaho, we leave the Pacific time zone, which is UK minus eight hours, and we entered the mountain time zone, UK minus seven hours. So it was time to remember to put one's watches forward an hour. At 5.20 in the morning, the train passed through Libby, which has a population of 2,630. It's another small town passed through in the night. In 1919, vermiculite was discovered in the mountains near the town, and at one stage it was producing 80% of all the vermiculite produced in the world. The vermiculite here at Libby contains asbestos, and it's estimated that 10% of the town's population died of asbestosis. By 2015, $425 million had been spent by the US government to clean up the contaminated soil and other suspect materials. In 2014, 5,400 people used the small station. We passed through the seven-mile-long Flathead Tunnel, the third largest tunnel in the Western Hemisphere and the second longest in the United States. It's about 42 miles west of the next stop at Whitefish. The tunnel was opened in 1917 following the need to reroute the railway because of the construction of the Libby Dam. At the eastern end of the tunnel a door can be closed and also there are fans to ventilate the tunnel. this morning as the train arrived at Whitefish. We were about 20 minutes early when we got there so we arrived at about 7 o'clock in the morning and had a 40 minute stop. It was a good opportunity to get out and have a breath of air. The Great Northern Railway was built through what is now Whitefish in 1904 and sparked the development of the town. The area was originally known as Stumptown due to the abundant amount of timber that had to be cleared to build the town and the railway. Early residents of the town worked for the railway and the local logging industry. It's quite interesting that a number of places were known as Stumptown because that was one of the original names given to Portland in Oregon. The Alpine-style station opened in 1927 and matches the beauty of its natural setting. It is the busiest Amtrak station in Montana with about 170 passengers each day. Whitefish is also the busiest stop on the Empire Builder route between the Pacific Ocean and St. Paul, Minnesota. 
The mountain resort, built in the late 1940s, is one of the nation's finest and best-kept Northwest secrets. The next station is West Glacier, also known as Belton West Glacier, and is at the entrance to Glacier Park, set aside as a national park in 1910. We pass the original Belton Chalet, the first lodge built by the Great Northern Railway for the park. The lodge is now restored and open to guests all year round. For those of you that like snow, the snowfall here averages between 100 to 200 inches each year. The station was originally built in 1910 and extended in 1935. In 2014 it was used by 5,013 passengers. Historically, the station was known as Belton, and that name is still displayed on the station building, so local knowledge is very important for travellers. We're now travelling through a mountainous, fir-forested area where the deciduous trees are certainly well into their colour change for autumn. The scenery is absolutely stunning and everywhere we go we keep crisscrossing rivers. One of the few problems that you get with scenery such as this is that they seem to have planted trees right alongside the railway so you have to be quick to get your photographs of anything but the trees feet from your nose. I'm here with Kim and Randy who are travelling on the same journey. They're going as far as St Paul, Minnesota, I think you said. And Randy's got his Canon camera out taking photographs every moment of the way. So another enthusiast for the beautiful scenery we're going through. So Kim, how often do you travel by train? I haven't travelled by train much uh, since I was a child, but I have lots of memories of being on the train with my mother, driving to Chicago, riding on the train to Chicago. And Is Chicago your home or that area? Family. My grandparents lived there and we would go from the Midwest further uh, east to Chicago on the train every year. So where do you live now? In Rochester, Minnesota. So we're about an hour and a half south of Minneapolis-St. Paul. On this trip, how did you get to wherever you started on the train? We flew out to San Francisco and rented a car and then drove the West Coast, San Jose, San Francisco, and then did the northern part, Portland, Vancouver, and Seattle, until we got on the train to head back to Minneapolis. And are you enjoying this journey? absolutely beautiful and I think one of the nice things is we're going through places that no road seems to go through at all it's absolutely right we when we were in uh, central Washington we were commenting on the same thing that there were no roads and we were seeing life totally different way well thank you very much that's very kind of you to say a few words We're in yet another area where the engineering of the railway must have been an amazing feat, clinging to the side of the mountain with a deep valley on the other side of the train before we see the mountains across the river. We've passed through a whole series of shelters which are there to stop snow and rocks landing on the tracks. We pass through the village of Essex, and that features the Isaac Walton Inn, a converted railway bunkhouse built in 1939. There are no phones or televisions in the room suites, so those who really want to get away from all distractions, email and conference calls, love to go to this place. The inn is popular with international travellers, cross-country skiers and train historians, and guests 
enjoy home-cooked meals in an original historic railway setting. The station platform is owned by the inn and is the only flag stop on the route. This means that the train only stops on a signal to the conductor and in 2014, 2,900 passengers had the train stopped to get on or off. There is also a siding where helper units used to push freight trains over the Marias Pass. After leaving Essex, we've crossed the Flathead River on the Coram Bridge, which is a high trestle looking across the canyon, and people often see wild mountain goats perched on the canyon wall. We then travel through the Marias Pass, also known as the Mystery Pass through the Rockies. The rumoured pass was sought by Lewis and Clark, but finally found by John Stevens with assistance from a Blackfoot Indian guide on a mission for the Great Northern Railway in 1889. The pass proved ideal for a railway because its approach is broad and open in a valley ranging from one to six miles wide. In addition, the grade is relatively gentle though we've been climbing for an hour or so at around 30 miles an hour. Construction of the railway through the pass began in August 1890. The pass is also shared by US Highway No. 2. As we go through the pass, we cross the Continental Divide at 5,216 feet above sea level. This is the lowest pass across the Rockies between New Mexico and Canada. At the summit of the pass, we see a monument to President Theodore Roosevelt. We reach Glacier Park Station, built in 1913, near 50 living glaciers and a 9,000 to 10,466 feet range of mountains. There is an impressive timbered lodge on the left, and that was partially constructed from trees estimated to be 600 years old. It was built by the Great Northern Railway to promote rail travel and attract tourists to this beautiful area. The actual park has 700 miles of trails and is a hiker's paradise. Leaving Glacier Park, we cross the Two Medicine River on a high trestle bridge. We're now really into big sky country. You can see for miles and miles with the mountain ranges probably 20 to 30 miles from us on a high plateau with grazing cattle. A completely different change of scenery, not a tree in sight, but it's still spectacular and amazing. We pass through Browning then the headquarters of the Blackfeet Indian Nation and a language learning centre. It hosts the largest Native American powwow in North America each July. The Museum of the Plains Indians is here as well. 25 minutes west of our next station at Cutbank, a monument to early explorer Meriwether Lewis commemorates his search for a pass through the Rockies. Just west of Cutbank Station we will have our last view of the Rockies. I'm sat with Barbara and Raymond at the moment who come from British Columbia which is north of the border with Canada and therefore like me are visitors to the United States. Now Barbara why are you doing this journey? Okay, This is an anniversary to each other, uh, something we wanted to do 
And what we did is we left Kelowna, British Columbia and flew to Seattle where we picked up the Amtrak train. And our final stop will be Boston with a change of train in Chicago and Albany. Once we get to Boston, we're spending four days there and then we're going to pick up the NCL or the Norwegian Cruise Line ship that's going to take us north with five ports of call, including Portland, Maine, Halifax, Nova Scotia, Charlottetown, PEI, Gatsby, Quebec, Saguenay, Quebec, and our final stop will be Quebec City. So we're going to stay in Quebec City for four days and then we're going to pick up the Canadian Rail with a stop in Ottawa and Toronto and go all the way the northern route to Vancouver and then fly back home to Kelowna. The flying back home is probably the shortest bit. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's only 30 minutes. So how long are you away for in total? 23 days. And you say this is an anniversary trip. Am I allowed to ask which anniversary? Ten years of her blended marriage. So are you enjoying it? This is so quite far. an experience. <laughs> our first night on the train was interesting last night. Not sleeping too well in the rocking motion and sleeping trying to sleep double in a single bed. This doesn't quite work. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes. But then you now have a situation where you can just sit down in a comfortable chair and watch the world go by. That's, that's why we're here. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You're welcome. We've now passed the Rockies and they're quickly heading out of view on the horizon. As we approach Cutbank, we're going through an area of arable farming. Also some horses and cattle I've seen. There have been one or two combine harvesters out doing the last of the cutting. Cutbank started as a great northern railway camp to build a trestle over the Cutbank Creek, which is less than a mile away. And although the station is only served by the Empire Builder for passenger traffic, it is an important regional freight yard with several grain collection elevators. The Canadian border is 25 miles to the north. We're only stopping to pick up two passengers. In 2014, 2,350 passengers used the station. We're pretty quickly out of Cutbank and back into the open plain land. Some of it has been ploughed and the area is noted for having the coldest midwinter temperatures anywhere in the United States. The farms that we're passing and the fields that we see are on the scale that is vast, much, much bigger than anything you would ever see in the UK. We're now passing some fields which are edged with hedges, some ploughed, some just stubble from this year's crops. And in the distance, on a hillside, I can see a wind farm the turbines turning, but that must be 20, 25 miles away from us. Shelby is a small town of 3,400 people, named after Peter Shelby, general manager of the Montana Central Railroad. The town is one of only three locations in the United States that has an antipode. An antipode is somewhere where there is land directly opposite them on the other side of the planet. So if we travel from Shelby through the centre of the earth, we'd arrive in the Kerguelen Islands, which are a scientific outpost in the southern Indian Ocean. 
For the Amtrak traveller, Shelby is referred to as a smoke break, as both westbound and eastbound Empire Builder trains stop there, and because the stop is a reasonably long one, passengers can get off the train for a short break. In 2014, the station was used by nearly 12,000 passengers. I'm with Cora and Chris, and I'm just asking them why they've decided to take the train. We uh, took the train because it has the option of sleeping little rooms, and it was as expensive as flying all the way to Minneapolis from Seattle, and uh, it seemed like a nice adventure to go on a little sleeping car train. I notice you say little rooms. <laughs> yes. Very little. <laughs> Roomettes, as yeah. they are termed. Yeah. The beds are actually quite comfortable. Yeah, it's pretty nice. You've got two seats that turn into beds, and then you got the bed that folds down from the top. So it works out pretty nicely, and uh, you got the benefit of being able to stretch your legs during the trip. So you live in Minneapolis or Seattle? Seattle. Seattle, yeah. And then we're just traveling to Minneapolis to visit family. I'm, I'm just surprised to see young people traveling on a train. <laughs> it is seen to be more a, a more older demographic so far we've noticed on the train too yeah so. i think i think because we're in a little less of a hurry to get there and trying to enjoy the trip there a little bit more than the other choice was to sit in an airport overnight for eight hours so that didn't sound very fun yeah. <laughs> no that isn't fun i i once sat in an airport overnight for eight hours and it was pretty miserable <laughs> yeah. exactly anyway thank you very much yeah thank you the train is currently travelling at 85 miles an hour and we're about 3,000 feet above sea level. As we head through this vast farming area, we pass small villages, very isolated farmsteads and occasionally large grain silos beside the tracks with their own siding so that the grain can be taken away by train in the most efficient way possible. This podcast has been made by the Mr. T Podcast Studio. Thank you very much for listening.